You're listening to a very special edition of the Interchange Recharged from the Wigwam Resort in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm your host, David Bammiller, and we're here at the Grid Edge Innovation Summit, where Wood McKenzie has brought together experts and representatives from leading distribution utilities, software technology developers, and more. Listen in as we bring you insights from speakers and attendees throughout the two-day conference. In episode one, we take a look at the state of the grid edge market, how the national grid is modernizing in time of unprecedented change, and we talk to a representative from the Department of Energy about the road ahead in long-duration storage. We'll also take a look at the EV charger ownership debate and the next generation of resilience offerings. All right, well, we're here with Chris Seipel, Vice Chairman, Energy Transition and Power Renewables at Wood McKenzie. Hi, Chris. Hi, it's great to see you again, David. Yeah, you too. Last time uh, we had you on was at the Solar and Energy Storage Summit in San Diego a few months back. That's right. So you, uh, you got the privilege of opening uh, the summit today. Uh, I mentioned about your 30-year career. You don't look that old, so I was surprised. <laughs> Thank I was, you. <laughs> I was doing the math myself trying to figure out. I didn't get much more. of a reaction from the audience on that, <laughs> <laughs> I noticed. <laughs> but you had talked about how you actually got into this area early on, like almost the first mover it wanted to make an impact. Uh, what were some of the driving factors in your decision? You know, I was going to go to law school, and I um, had just read a book called For the Common Good by an economist at the World Bank named Herman Daly. And it was about the intersection of the environment, energy, economics, physics, even religion. And um, I was walking around the law school fair, and then on the other side of the gymnasium was a graduate school fair. And I actually met these professors at the University of Pennsylvania that um, had developed a, a program, it's called the Center for Energy and the Environment, that was kind of looking at all of these issues in a very interdisciplinary way. And um, we were already having the discussion about climate change. That was already a big part of it. And they were working to kind of figure out prescriptions to kind of address this coming problem. As it's turned out, it's a very complicated problem. And I was attracted to kind of solving that complicated problem. And that was how I, I wound up in the career that I went down. When I was in graduate school, it was a really important turning point in the history of power markets as well, because I graduated in 1992, and that was the year that the energy bill was passed that deregulated the wholesale power industry, um, which also brought about a tremendous amount of change to the industry. Well, glad you made that decision. Me too. <laughs> you also said that uh, you, know, you go to a lot of these summits uh, throughout the year. How impactful do you think they are in terms of helping to drive the discussion around the energy transition? You know, I think it's particularly important now. Um, and I think that's in part because the intersection of the government policies, the technologies, what different companies are doing requires a lot of coordination and kind of sharing of information. Also a lot of, well, you know, almost brainstorming new ideas, hearing new thoughts and things like that. And I, I think it's, you know, both the US and Europe you're seeing in the energy sector, a lot more kind of government driven industrial policy, which really makes it necessary to kind of bring together these groups of people to foster that kind of collaboration and, and cooperation and try to kind of generate the best ideas. I mean, I just moderated a panel with 
Stephen Hendrickson from the Department of Energy, who's running out a program that is going to provide industry with billions and billions of dollars. Uh, he didn't say it during the panel, but in my conversation with him, they've estimated that they are essentially trying to seed capital that is going to activate overall capital spend of $23 trillion. So it's just an enormous amount of money. He's here because he wants to share their ideas, but he also wants to get feedback from everybody else who's here about is Department of Energy heading in the right direction? As he said, do we have blind spots that we're not seeing um, and kind of getting that advice? So events like this right now are really critical and important. And that was a great discussion. I mean, all the different pieces that, that need to come together uh, for 2050. And we had the panel discussion on grid modernization. What are some of the things that you'd like to take away from uh, the rest of this summit? What I'm personally really interested in is kind of what the grid modernization panel talked about a little bit. We have figured out how to deploy renewable energy at scale and at a low cost. What we have not figured out is how to keep overall cost levels manageable as we go through this transition and, and how to have the right intersection of what's happening at the customer level with what's happening on the wholesale grid. And, and that really is the grid edge. What I'm really interested in kind of learning about is really the role that we need electric utilities to play as we go through this transition. I was having a conversation with somebody recently who was it was actually the former CEO of National Grid and then became head of the National Electric Reliability Committee. And he was asked, when was the last time there was any significant innovation in the transmission grid? And he thought about it. And his answer was 1960, um, when we basically deployed 760 kilovolt transformers. And he was like, there's really not been any innovation since then. And utilities aren't really, they talked about it this morning, they're, they're not incented really to innovate. They come up with a big innovation, they don't make tons of money like other types of investors would make. And this transformation is going to require a lot of innovation of electric utilities. This is a massive transformation of demand on the utilities side of it and kind of variable renewable generation and how it intersects with that demand. So I'm really interested to kind of hear what's happening at the electric utilities and like what that conversation was about, like uh, National Grid deploying line vision, advanced transmission technologies. And she said, we don't have an economic incentive to do this. They're doing it because they're trying to figure out every lever that they can use to try to accommodate this transition because that's a corporate goal of theirs. But kind of that conversation, how do you bring utilities into this? How do you drive that innovation? What I found interesting and I'd like to hear was about the investment uh, from some of these companies in energy transition, because I've always said that there's this gap in financing between that VC seed capital and kind of where banks can traditionally lend and they need those partnerships. But everybody up there today was talking about what they have allocated from investments in new technologies to help drive the discussion forward, which is exactly the type of funding that they need to get up to the scalable size. Yeah, and we'll have a whole panel on that topic tomorrow. So stay tuned <laughs> um, with a venture capital group and, uh, and somebody who's leading innovation for a company that owns electric utilities. So. Looking forward to that. Well, listen, enjoy the rest of the summit. Thanks for stopping by. I appreciate it. Sounds great. I'm David Bam Miller, live from the Grid Edge Innovation Summit, day one. It's really busy, but it's been great to have everybody together and engaged in conversations. Let's see who we can find next.
I'm now joined by Amy Bailey, Director of Innovation and Portfolio Management at National Grid Partners. Amy, thanks. Great to be here. Tell me about your work with uh, National Grid Partners. What, you, what are you guys looking for? What are you investing in? Yeah, absolutely. So at National Grid Partners, uh, we are the innovation and investment arm of the National Grid Group. Uh, the National Grid Group, we have electric and gas utilities uh, in the U.S. as well as electric utilities in the U.K. and a variety of uh, competitive businesses. And so we're really, um, you know, a strategic investment and innovation arm. We look for specifically companies that not only can provide financial value, uh, but that also can provide us strategic value to help us, uh, you know, accelerate the energy transition, both internally within the company and more broadly than that. And so we really focus on the three Ds. Uh, I know that's very um, kind of common, but decentralization, digitization, and decarbonization. So those are the, the three mega trends um, that we focus on. Uh, and there are a variety of, of different opportunities for investment and technologies that fit within those categories. I think you had mentioned that your CEO wants to be an energy transition company, right? Yes. And so is that part of the driving force behind uh, these investments? Uh, absolutely. Um, that's absolutely a part of the driving force. Um, and so it's nice to have that, that ambition uh, certainly coming from the top. Um, and so we were really formed to accelerate the energy transition. The term that our group CEO and our founder, uh, Lisa Lambert, the NGP founder, likes to use is we like to, uh, we were formed to disrupt ourselves um, because we know there are all of these disruptive forces. We know that we have to change our business uh, to achieve climate goals. Uh, and you know, we're kind of a nice forcing function uh, really for positive change across the business so that we can achieve those goals together. And as you're looking at your investments um, and your profile of the companies that you're investing in, what type of size or is there any kind of game-changing technology that, that you're looking at more than others? Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of game-changing tech out there. In terms of the types of investments that we make, the average check size um, that, that we issue is around $5 million. Around half the time, we do lead the round. Um, there are a, a variety of different um, kind of technologies that fit under the digitization uh, megatrend that we've invested in, some related to asset management. Uh, that's a really big area for us. Customer experience um, is, is a very big area for us. Um, and also we've invested in some kind of more hard tech companies, such as uh, those that will help us achieve, you know, our decarb tar targets on the transmission side, uh, as well as behind the meter. And so electrified um, forklifts, uh, we have a company that focuses on that. We have a company that focuses on specifically getting more transmission capacity, you know, out of the lines that we have. We have a couple companies focused on that. From a strategic standpoint, are there any investments that have really been impactful to your business? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, around 80% of our portfolio are strategic investments, which means we have uh, pilots uh, with various business units, uh, pilots where these products and services are deployed um, across the company. Uh, one example of that, there are too many to name, first of all, um, but one example of that, that that we've released a press release on recently uh, was with Line Vision. And so last October, we announced um, a large project, actually the largest dynamic line rating project in the U.S. that we're deploying with Line Vision, one of our portfolio companies. Uh, that's in upstate New York. That's in, uh, anticipated to help avoid um, you know, hundreds of megawatts of renewables curtailment. So that type of technology, uh, for those who aren't familiar, it allows us to have real-time knowledge of what the rating is of the transmission line such that we can, you know, understand whether we can transmit more power 
uh, over it. So it's a really important solution for getting uh, you know, more capacity out of the wires we already have and absolutely needed uh, you know, right now as we're developing more and more renewable energy, both in the U.S. and the U.K., Glad to hear that. We actually had Line Vision on the podcast a number of months ago. Uh, it was a great discussion. From a geographical standpoint, any innovations that you're finding in one area that have really been successful transferring into the other? So I think one fantastic thing about uh, you know being a part of a company that's multinational is that you can take uh, learnings you know from one country, one environment, uh, and really apply them to the others. And so there are a variety of different. Uh, innovations um, uh, and various companies that we've worked with. For instance, uh, through our, uh, our work in the UK, through our businesses uh, in the UK that have proven to be you know, successful, that we then adopt you know, that technology uh, over here in the US. There's a lot of areas that the UK has advanced a lot farther than the US. So there's a lot of lessons that can be learned, not only in terms of what works, but what doesn't work uh, as well that we can adopt here in the States. From the overall summit, what are some of the most interesting tidbits and things that you've taken away from day one? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot of information, you know, a lot of insight uh, from the various industry players that we've heard today. So it's hard to uh, it's hard to synthesize or select just one or two points. Um, but I think you know one interesting area of conversation uh, on the grid modernization panel. Um, you know, was brought up about how we might want to consider for the utility sector actually a kind of decoupling 2.0. So the decoupling 1.0 that took place was, you know, really decoupling sales um, from uh, from how the business is regulated and how how the utility business model is structured. Um, Now we're talking more about, or at least at this conference, you're hearing a lot of comments about you know, not ret- getting a return on physical assets, um, but actually getting a return on services. Um, and so decoupling effectively uh, in another way, kind of from the physical asset base. And so that's, uh, that, I think there have been, uh, you know, a lot of interesting comments on that from uh, a variety of different attendees today, which was uh, something that wasn't necessarily quite on my quite on my radar. And I think uh, Susanna Mora from from Exelon had used that terminology of decoupling 2.0, which I thought was a really um, kind of interesting way to describe this. Yeah, there were some fascinating discussions around that point in regards to making it easier for the consumer, right? Mm-hmm. Because that they were saying a lot of people don't look at their bills. Uh, just a number of ways to further the energy transition was make it easy and being that service provider, not necessarily getting the return on assets and investments that way um, is, is really a, a pretty fascinating concept to help move this initiative forward. Absolutely. Well, Melissa, I appreciate you stopping by and saying hi. Thanks very much for having me. Love the interchange. I listen to it all the time. I'm joined by Martin Milani, CEO at Sunverge Energy. Martin, uh, thanks for stopping by. Thank you. How are you liking the summit? What are some of the key things and most interesting topics that you've heard? All of it, right? I mean, innovation at the grid edge, which is what we do at Sunverge. This is what we preached for a while. And I think uh, it's, it's an incredible uh, event in terms of what I think is a very important piece of the puzzle, which is the innovation at the grid edge. Absolutely. You were on a panel discussion on uh, grid insecurity. What were some of the key themes from that discussion? A vehicle to grid and how vehicle to grid could help uh, resiliency. I think certainly there is uh, helping with backup power in a vehicle to home type configuration, but also how can electrical vehicles help the grid in terms of local system reliability and the fact that you could have electric trucks being driven around to be able to help parts of the grid that, that are in need of support. 
So what are some of the trends that you're seeing in that area? I think we're still very early on. I think it's still people are still, uh, first of all, you know, the EV penetration is still a fairly low number. In most cases, I think OEM or, or EV manufacturers still do not warrant the battery for use for anything other than driving. I think that all of that is starting to be discussed. So I think uh, there's a couple of different angles to that. Bidirectional EV charging, which is uh, something that's, uh, again, very new, but it's going to be a mainstream subject in the next 24 months, I would say, allows for the EV to discharge its battery to help you know, the grid or help uh, load in the home. And I think that's something that's talked about quite a bit. Uh, what remains to be seen is, is that going to replace stationary storage, which in my view, uh, the answer is no. I think it's sort of kind of, at least not for the immediate future, because I think most EV owners still are worried about range and making sure they have enough capacity to drive wherever they want to drive to. And most EVs in the market today don't have high capacity uh, batteries and are not that efficient. But I think once, you know, you get the second generation, third generation EV technologies coming where they can drive five, 600 miles with the battery capacity or, or you know, 100 kW at uh, H and more, you're going to see enough capacity or SOC be available to be used for end use other than driving. And I think that's some, something that's pretty exciting. And I think that's what the whole industry is trying to figure out how it's sort of kind of going to evolve because so far all the talk is around managing charging times and so on and so forth. But with bi-directional EV charging, all of that conversation changes. What do you think needs to be done to kind of help further that initiative, whether it's regulatory, government incentives, anything that could kind of help push that forward a little bit faster? I would say regulatory. I think electric utilities can be a major enabler of helping, um, you know, the transformation of people moving away from ICE cars into EVs. And I think the ability for uh, utilities to get into the business of EVs one way or another providing interesting tariffs, providing, uh, you know, incentives, or perhaps even subsidizing or paying for in-home EV charging, bi-directional EV charging, pairing that up with uh, tariffs, and perhaps even help with rebates for EV manufacturers to help the transformation from ICE to EV. That obviously requires utilities to get more aggressive in this area, but also it needs the regulatory construct to allow them to do so. So what are some of the things that Sunverge is working on? Well, we've been in the business of managing uh, energy storage. Uh, we had probably the first intelligent energy storage in the market back in 2012. So what Sunverge does is the ability to control DERs behind the meter assets, everything from PV to energy storage to EV charging, bi-directional or not bi-directional, and control load. So the ability to control generation, energy storage, which can be either and load, in order to optimize the home and be a home energy management system for the home, as well as aggregating a number of homes together to provide multi-service and multi-asset virtual power plants, which can provide the services back to the grid or to the utility. Everything from peak management to uh, frequency regulation to frequency response to voltage support, voltage conservation, which really creates optimization behind the meter and optimization above the meter. I should say co-optimization behind the meter and above the meter. As we continue down the energy transition, it seems like the problem gets more complex. 
the farther along that we get. And so, you know, these conferences are really nice uh, because it brings people together, it brings ideas together. How do you think that this can help further the discussion and really accelerate the energy transition with these type of events bringing everybody together? It definitely will help because <laughs> I think, you know, it's a distributed problem which has, you know, it needs to be solved in a distributed fashion. It takes a lot more than just a utility to solve this problem. You need the utilities, you need the energy service providers, you need aggregators, uh, uh, you need consumers. But I think uh, at the end of the day, at least in my view, consumers don't want to be in the business of trading electricity. They don't want to be in the business of you know, bidding into wholesale markets and making a little dollar here and a little, uh, you know, another dollar there. Most customers, in fact, don't open up their bill. And when they do, they don't really read it. And that includes me, who, who uh, is in the industry. I think people like to fire and forget. So they like to know that they are uh, minimizing the bill. And they like to know that the lights are on. And that's all they care about. It's a complex problem to solve. So I think we need to make it, make it less complex in terms of how to use it. A customer doesn't need to know what dynamic pricing is or what are they going to do now or what are they going to do a day from now or when they should charge. And they should just be far and forget and to know that they've minimized their bill. I completely agree. I mean, that's like myself. I, look, I open up my bill just to look at what the number is. Is it up? <laughs> is it down? Is it ridiculous? <laughs> These days it's ridiculous, but it's is it lower than last month? it's $50 here and there. It's not going to, you know, uh, at least for a lot of people. I mean, there was a study done six, seven years ago that the average consumer like looked at their bill for like 10 seconds <laughs> or something like that. That's still for the most part true today. So I don't think we necessarily need to come up with very exotic market constructs to figure out how electricity consumers can bid into markets and make money and how do you pay and how do you measure, how do you audit. I think we should just make it simple and allow the entities that be selling them electricity to do some of these things for them in a way that's uh, transparent, but at the same time, fire and forget. Here's what you get paid, and we offer you this service, and it includes optimizing and minimizing your bill, and it includes you helping the grid when we need it. And for Sunverge, I mean, any insight in terms of regionally or demographically where you're seeing the most progress or enthusiasm? Two or three years ago, you would probably see only the coasts, right? California, you know, Washington, uh, Oregon, and then maybe on the East Coast, you see Massachusetts and New York. But it's changing, and it's changing quite a bit. So now you're seeing the middle of the country doing some really interesting stuff, the Midwest, uh, the South. I would say maybe a few years ago, it was kind of a coastal phenomena, but it no longer is. And I think that's going to continue to accelerate. Because just like any other uh, sort of kind of a trend, you know, usually you get the coasts that sort of kind of come up with the trends and then they sort of propagate into the rest of the country. And making things simpler for the consumer, what are some of the near-term things that you think can be done to help drive that? I think traditionally electricity and traditionally the way some of these programs are managed are geared towards bill savings, right? So, for example, if you're going in and trying to get a PV on your roof or, or buy energy storage or pair up energy storage with your existing PV. You know, the way it's looked at is, oh, well, I could save, you know, $80 a month and maybe in 10 years I get my money back. 
And that itself is not of a driver. I think a lot of people kind of do that because it's, a, it's either they want to or uh, they can afford to or they're sort of kind of first adopters. But I think markets don't scale up with the first adopters only. You're going to have to figure out to get a, you know, the average person to participate in these things. Therefore, I don't think these things need to be uh, made available to everybody. One method, uh, it's not the only method, is obviously rate-basing these things, where the utilities sort of kind of put these into their rate base and uh, make it available to whoever wants to have it and wh wherever they need it, as opposed to trying to make it you know, a, a sort of a savings incentive where you're going to have to provide some, somebody would have to either finance a fair amount of money or put up the money up front so they could get the savings back over the period of time. I don't know too many businesses that would actually invest in a capital expenditure if their payback is like six or seven years. So I'm not sure why we're asking people to do that. <laughs> well, listen, I appreciate you stopping by and, and talking with me today, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. Still here at day one at the Grid Edge Innovation Summit. Already spoke to uh, a number of amazing guests. Hope you guys are enjoying the insights, and let's see who we can grab next. All right, I'm with Stephen Hedrickson, Market Analysis Program Manager in the Office of Technology Transitions at the U.S. Department of Energy. Stephen, welcome. Thank you for having me. So how are you enjoying the summit thus far? It's been great. I think there's obviously a lot of excitement in the clean tech sector, and we really appreciate getting together as a group to talk through a lot of these issues. You gave a really interesting presentation on long duration storage. And I know you outlined uh, three areas that really needed to reach a liftoff stage by 2030 in terms of being able to reach that long duration storage by 2050. You want to elaborate a little bit on those and how far along we are? Certainly. So the three categories that we really identified through our analysis is first the need for continued cost reductions and performance improvements in a range of long duration energy storage technologies. The second is continued market uh, reforms and regulatory reforms to enable the long duration energy storage technologies to be compensated by markets so that the value they provide is compensated by the system. And then the third piece is recognizing that you know, we need to develop these supply chains so that we maximize the benefit to the American people for the, the scale up of these technologies. Where do you see out of those three as the most challenged? The department has a long history of doing research and development to improve technologies, and we've seen those technologies deploy in the marketplace. The one area that we're particularly focused on through this demonstration and deployment pathways analysis is understanding from the market perspective, what is it going to take to commercialize and scale up technologies? We're really thinking about $100 billion of capital formation in a particular sector so that the economics really start to take off for themselves. I think that kind of thinking is really going to be critical to be successful and to see large-scale market adoption. And so that's an area we're really focusing on in particular. I'm really curious, from your experience with the Department of Energy, it seems like now we've obviously got a lot more support and focus on the energy transition. How are you seeing the regulatory environment evolve over just even say the past two or three years to kind of help further that discussion? I think there's just a greater sophistication across a range of stakeholders and understanding how different parts of the system need to be incorporated into a strategy that's going to be successful. So things like workforce, safety, 
environmental considerations, all those pieces need to be kind of incorporated into a strategy so that we can really you know, accelerate the deployment of these technologies and go after our, our national you know, climate, economic, and security goals as a country. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it seems like the further along we get, the more complex the, the situation becomes, or you realize how many different pieces are a part of it. I agree. I think it's just a really exciting time. I think under the secretary's leadership from the department and from the president on down, there's so much energy and enthusiasm to really get after this. I think it's driving a lot of new you know, young people, talent to, to come to the sector to engage. So it's really an exciting time. And we're just trying to do our best to understand kind of where, where things are out in the private sector so that the department can be as thoughtful and as effective as possible. Yeah, I was actually having a conversation earlier today with some people about the younger generation coming in and being interested in this space where for many, many years, that was not the case. But you bring up enthusiasm and it's being, it's being seen across the, across the industry. Yeah, definitely. I think it's an exciting time. And as I say, there's more questions than we have answers to. So to the extent we can bring smart people in to, to help us get after it, I think that that's, it's a great opportunity. And you know, we're always looking to, to bring a new talent into the department. So that's always something I hope that you know, young people keep in mind. Anything you'd like to see, you know, call it the next uh, 24, 48 months or so uh, out there that would really help further what you guys are doing and in your initiatives? I think there's a lot of activity underway, and I think that over time, we're going to see more and more sort of the fruits of that labor in the marketplace. And I think that that is going to hopefully build a sort of a virtuous cycle where we get continued you know, momentum and support for this kind of activity and that the public recognizes that vision, what is possible, and gets on a, more, uh, on a sustained course. Any other kind of key takeaways from, from your presentation? Like I said, it was, it was really interesting. I enjoyed it. But any other things that you'd like everybody to know? I think the other, just to go back to the demonstration and deployment pathways work that we have underway, we're focused right now on long-duration energy storage, but we're also looking at hydrogen, carbon management to include carbon capture, uh, storage and direct air capture, advanced nuclear, other grid applications. So we really are taking a very holistic look at um, a number of uh, challenges and opportunities. And, and I think long-duration energy storage is just a really interesting one in particular. Well, listen, I appreciate you stopping by and talking with us. Like I said, uh, really enjoyed your presentation earlier today. So thanks a lot. Thank you. Appreciate the time. So I'm joined by Crystal Stiles, Executive Director, FPL Development, Distributed Technologies and Mobility. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. So you were just uh, on a panel regarding EV infrastructure ownership, uh, the debate surrounding that. What were some of the key points and themes uh, from that discussion? So, you know, you use the word debate, and I think it ended up not really being a debate because I think there's sort of general consensus that we need a lot of EV infrastructure and there need to be a lot of different players making those investments, whether it be utilities, whether it be other private sector companies. Um, we need all resources being leveraged to meet the need, the growing need of EV drivers. One of the comments you made during the panel was pretty interesting. You said FPL is a tech company that just happens to sell energy. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, you know, we are an electric utility, but we're so much more than that. And, you know, our parent company is Nextera Energy. It's the world's largest um, producer of wind and solar energy. Uh, we have a number of technological solutions like um, we deploy uh, uh, drone flights to assist us with um, 
you know, storm restoration and to inspect our power lines. We leverage lots of new technologies on our grid, and that's why it's been so exciting to be at this conference to hear about, you know, other new technologies that are coming out. And so, you know, I think we realized along the way that we're not sort of the the traditional stodgy old electric utility, you know, that, that people think of. We happen to really be focused on building out the best technology that can make our commodity the best for our customers, and that happens to be energy. And what are some of the initiatives that you guys are, are moving forward with as it relates to EVs? We really look at electric vehicle investments holistically. And so, you know, we know that there's lots of different ways that people charge. 85 to 90% of the time, they're charging between home and the workplace. And so, you know, we focused on building a residential home charging program that makes it really easy for Floridians to, for one fixed monthly cost, to have a level two charger in their garage and also have included off-peak charging But we also know that people enjoy going on road trips and they want to know that they can get from point A to point B and not have to worry about running out of charge. And so we've also deployed public charging infrastructure on Florida's highways and byways and in rural communities that unlock electrification corridors. And finally, we're focused on fleet electrification. So not only our own internal fleet, which we are focused sharply on electrifying our own fleet, but also helping other Florida companies and municipalities with their own fleet electrification plans. And as you continue down that path, what are some of the, the biggest challenges that you guys are facing? Well, I think that it's really education and awareness at this point. I think that this is an old technology that's new again. I think people are very comfortable getting in their internal combustion vehicle and driving to the gas station and spending three minutes and refueling and going on their way. And the ecosystem is there. It's very easy. We're comfortable with it. We've been doing this for over 100 years. And so now we're asking for consumers to shift a mindset and get comfortable with a new technology. And I think that always um, presents a challenge in the early days. You know, you have the early adopters who are willing to take a risk and be a little uncomfortable and um, not exactly know what's going on until it gets figured out. But we're building out the ecosystem. And I think as it gets more mature and and consumers see EV charging in the marketplace, it'll make it easier for them to make the choice to drive electric. It's a common theme that I hear in regards to the energy transition, but even more specifically EVs is education. I mean, even throughout this conference, I've learned a a couple things that I've had previous historical thoughts about that now I'm like, oh, wow, actually it's very different. So I'm continuing to be educated as well. How is that going? I mean, are you finding that it's starting to accelerate particularly as it relates to some of the initiatives that the government has put in place. I mean, you've got the IRA. There just seems to be a lot more support for this initiative, uh, EVs, but energy transition in general. But do you see it gaining momentum? Totally. It's definitely gaining momentum. I think it's, it's much more visible. And the more people hear about it, the more commonplace it becomes. But I think what we have found, particularly in Florida, which is the second largest state for EVs in the country behind California, is that people can't see the technology. The the vehicles aren't easily and readily accessible. Um, And so we do ride and drives around the state of Florida where we bring a fleet of 10 or 20 electric vehicles of different types, different makes, different models. And we have thousands of people show up to drive them. And we do perception studies before and after they drive. And overwhelmingly, 85 to 90% of people say, yes, now that they've been able to touch it and feel it and see it and understand it and talk to our experts, they're much more willing to adopt it. It's something I would completely engage in. I've, I've actually never driven an EV. Uh, oh, talk well, we'll about have to lot, change but, that. But it's something that I would absolutely take advantage of. Uh, you, you guys are also doing a number of 
of initiatives around like your innovation hub and, and your startup incubator. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think this goes back to where we started this conversation around us being a technology company that happens to sell energy. And, you know, the way that we're able to do that is through innovation. And, you know, innovation at FPL and at NextEra has always been decentralized. And, and all of us sort of have a responsibility to innovate every day in our jobs. But there are a few formal programs that we've put in place to continue to encourage our employees to innovate and push the edges of our company, which helps us grow and get get better. Our innovation hub is run through our IT department, actually. We do many shark tanks and other types of programs where we bring startups to pitch to us. Um, and we're able to identify technologies that we should be able to deploy to solve problems on our grid with EV charging. And then near and dear to my heart is our in-house um, innovation hub called 35 Mules, where we bring in a cohort of startups from moonshot ideas to more commercialized you know, products that are closer to commercialization. And we wrap them with the collective expertise of all of our employees and help them get their businesses to the next level. And it's very inspiring. And I think it encourages all of us to, to maintain that, that innovative spirit and that entrepreneurial mindset that helps us grow our business. It fills a gap that I've talked a number of times on, on my podcast about is you've got the VC firms and then you've got the banks. Um, and along the way, there seems to be a gap. And what's what I really like seeing is that a lot of larger energy tech companies have really started these partnership programs with developing technologies as it relates to, to green tech and the energy transition. And it's really starting to help accelerate that. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, then we get to see the technology before it's it's really fully baked and we get to help shape it and, and help inform the process. And I think that gets to a better end result for that new technology. So what are some of the, the things that you'd like to have as a takeaway uh, from the summit? Well, I'm always looking around the corner. And so I'm hoping to uncover, you know, that next solution. Um, what is that next thing? You know, I talked a lot about mobility and, and a big part of, of my team's role is mobility, but the other side is distributed technologies. And so, you know, we're looking at all of these connected devices, we're looking at microgrids, we're looking at storage and other things and how they allow us to provide a better service, a better commodity to our customers. And so I'm hoping to uncover that next new thing that we can take back to Florida and deploy on our, on our system. And how are you finding the regulatory environment these days and supporting your initiatives? Well, we're really fortunate in Florida that we have a wonderful regulatory environment. Um, you know, part of that is because we uphold our promises that we make to our regulators. We do what we say, and we're always pushing to get better and 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 do do more for our customers. Um, but we're very fortunate. Florida's enables us to invest in in EV infrastructure. In fact, our commission chair is a, a huge advocate of EVs and really, I think, sees the opportunity that lies ahead for Floridians with utilities investing in this infrastructure. One of the biggest reasons that utilities should have a role in this space is that we're willing to to deploy capital in places that others might not. We're not as driven by utilization and more about unlocking these pathways. And so we've deployed infrastructure in some of the most rural places in Florida, in some of the least traveled highways in Florida. But it gives me the confidence that I can drive from the East Coast to the West Coast of Florida, and I can stop in the middle of our state and recharge if I need to. And I think those types of investments will encourage even 
you know, more investment by others who are willing to join us and really cover Florida in that infrastructure and building out that ecosystem. Well, and you're right. Uh, a good track record always helps with the regulators. Absolutely. Well, listen, Crystal, thanks for stopping by. Appreciate the discussion and look forward to seeing more what, uh, what FPL does in the future. Great. Thanks so much for having me. The Grid Edge Innovation Summit is based here in sunny Phoenix, Arizona at the Wigwam Resort. A gorgeous day at the resort, which uh, comes after four days of rain, which I'm told is the most that they've had here in 15 years. Let's see who we can find next. I'm here with Melissa Chan, a Director of Grid Solutions and Strategic Partnerships at Fermata Energy. Melissa, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much, David. So what are some of the most interesting takeaways and themes that you've heard today? Oh my goodness. Okay, so we're only on day one of this summit, but there have been a lot of really great conversations. There are conversations about everything from how to use this giant trove of data from meters and sensors on the grid in order to, you know, improve operations all the way to, you know, business reform or even um, on my panel, what does it really mean to be behind the meter or front of meter? Or do we just think about the whole network as being connected and not behind or in front of the meter as an arbitrary dividing point? Can you tell me a little bit about uh, Fermata Energy and some of the things that you guys are doing? Oh, absolutely. So Fermata Energy is a vehicle to everything technology provider. And that means we charge and discharge electric vehicles. We connect to bi-directional EVs with bi-directional chargers. And what we bring to this is a software optimization platform, optimizing the charge and discharge based on, you know, say, providing power to reduce building loads or you know, back to the grid as needed. Yeah, that seems to be a, a big theme going forward is the bi-directional charging and discharge uh, of the EVs. Yes, it is. Um, pretty much every automotive OEM has announced bi-directional EVs in their lineup, and we have been doing bi-directional charging for two years now. Um, this is a technology that's available now. Um, we don't need to pilot. It's actually working in the wild commercially in, in many markets around the U.S. So you were just on a panel on grid resiliency. And one of the things I'm curious about your takeaways on, you know, how resilient is the grid in extreme weather, such as hurricanes and, and floods and things like that? Oh, boy. Where do we start? Do we have half hour? I think there's so much rolled into grid resiliency. And, um, you know, the panel was only limited to 40 minutes. But there's everything from, you know, grid monitoring and being able to detect where outages could be happening, really keeping up on top of operations during a storm. Of course, you know, predictive analytics in order to see where things could be happening, using intelligent assets in order to aid with recovery. So, you know, something that many utilities have are smart meters where they can see who is receiving power and, you know, address nested outages and really focus their efforts on recovery. The interesting thing that we're going to be seeing moving forward is the deployment of more distributed energy resources. You know, the timing is right. The technology is there. You know, a lot of the conversation at this summit is centering on how do utilities, say, engage their customers, engage technology providers like Fermata Energy in order to have more 
dispatchable power and storage when needed in the case of emergencies. And um, one thing that we touched on on the panel that I think will be really important to consider going forward, especially for our resilience, is how do we provide the signals, not just the time-based signals, but the location-based signals to say, here is where the power is needed, especially with a resource like vehicle to grid, where we are able to bring power on wheels, you know, not just with poles and wires, to where it's needed for grid resilience. It's a point that in many, many areas, the grid has not been updated in in a very long time. And now we're starting to see a lot more complexity with the introduction of, of EVs, of renewable sourced energy onto the grid. And so the technology really, really needs to, to step up because I think it's being driven by the technology. And as you see some of the things that are going on, whether it's it's natural disasters or, or others, that building that grid resiliency is is critical. And it's being driven by a lot of these technologies that can kind of help in those types of situations. Absolutely. Um, There's a lot of thinking that utilities are going to have to work through their regulators and also technology providers like us. Um, A question that came up during the panel, and I know that this is one that, you know, this industry as a whole, you know, we think of clean tech as utilities and regulators and technology providers like Fermata Energy, is how do we interconnect more of these resources quickly? Um, There are many jurisdictions where energy storage is not yet included in the interconnection tariff. And, you know, we, you know, all of us very much need this resource to be connected and ready to go every day, not just emergencies. And as it relates to your your technology specifically and your business model, I mean, how are you finding the adoption? I mean, do you think that there's a lot more momentum and kind of wind behind the sails going forward than it was three years ago? Yes, absolutely. Um, while I joined Fermata Energy August last year, um, you know, I joined at a very exciting time. We're now two years into having our commercially real projects. You know, some of our projects now have been operating in the field for two years, and you know, we are growing our team in order to scale and bring this technology to utilities. You know, the um, the message that I hope folks get from these conversations are that this technology is commercially ready. It fits into, say, energy efficiency programs or demand response or um, emergency response programs, such as the emergency response load program in California. It's a dispatchable resource. You know, essentially, we're turning electric vehicles into inverter-based battery storage. Listen, appreciate you coming on. Uh, and stopping by and talking with us. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. Thanks, David. I'm now joined by Ben Hertz-Shargle, Global Head of Grid Edge at Wood McKenzie. Ben, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So earlier, you gave a presentation on the state of the Grid Edge market. Uh, what were some of the key themes that you really want to emphasize? Well, I think the uh, themes fell into several kind of buckets. Uh, the first bucket was around economics and specifically how homeowners can adopt certain technologies and which ones make sense economically and which don't. So, uh, for example, we we reviewed uh, net metering, which is a a key requirement uh, in many cases for customers to go solar. And as we lose net metering across different jurisdictions, it becomes harder to pencil for customers. And so that is going to put pressure on the industry. And we talked about how in California, the net metering uh, 3.0 proposal, which is a, a way of restructuring 
compensation for solar could actually really compress the market by 40% within a few years. This pairs into kind of a, a technology set of findings where heat pumps, which is a key technology for electrifying our buildings, uh, both residential and commercial, turn out only to be economic in certain states. And it really comes down to the difference between retail electricity and, uh, and gas rates. And in certain states where it doesn't pencil automatically, it turns out that solar is a really natural pairing for uh, heat pumps that can kind of push it into the money. And heat pumps also promote the self-consumption for a customer of solar, which is, has different kind of uh, beneficial properties. Now, a different kind of category of finding was on the financing side. I spoke about how around $22 billion in uh, DER, or really kind of grid edge infrastructure, will be required in uh, the year 2026. So it's a huge market coming up. And the question is, who is going to fund it? I spoke about some of the options of either end customers doing it, which is really a challenged proposition, uh, versus uh, utilities, versus private capital. Um, and so I think the private capital route is really exciting. But during the event today, a lot of people made the compelling argument for utilities to play a role in financing that infrastructure. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we, we had a number of people talking about the, the partnerships in terms of helping to drive this technology forward. And, you know, I've mentioned a number of times there's that gap and there's just not financing necessarily available for some of these technology companies. So for, you know, large partners to come in to provide that capital to be able to help accelerate the development of the technology, I think is, is really important. How much does politics play in here? Well, I think one of the interesting findings of our study that, that kind of led to this presentation is if you look at the states in which net metering, which again is this crucial funding mechanism for residential and commercial solar, net metering has been taken away, Democrat and Republican states have very different profiles. And Democrat states, which have seen a, a higher level of solar penetration historically, are also much more tolerant of high penetration levels in general. So even upwards of 5 to 10%, and they will maintain net metering as a policy. Whereas in Republican states, they are much more quick at much lower penetration levels. They get rid of net metering. Another finding that I thought was most interesting is there are four states that are moving towards what I call compromise net metering, which is a kind of in between the most generous existing net metering and what California is moving to, which is much more strict. And those are Republican states. So there is a possibility of Republican states being this laboratory in which key compromises in tariff development take place. What else can be done to really help further uh, the drive toward this? Because you, you mentioned 2026 and some of the numbers that you had up there, and I know there, there were some big numbers. I mean, $10 billion for uh, EV infrastructure, $6 billion for residential storage. What, what's being done to kind of help that be achievable and versus what, uh, what should be done? So that was a key question during the event today, uh, and that's part of the debate of whether utilities should be bankrolling this new grid edge infrastructure, or if we should be relying on private capital. I think utilities, because of their incentives, are actively trying to own EV charging networks. They're trying to deploy microgrids, even behind the meter storage uh, at customer sites. Now, private capital, there's a tremendous amount on the sidelines right now. They're looking to get involved, but they see a, you know, a certain risk profile that I think makes them hesitant, especially this more kind of these newer technologies at smaller scale. However, the model that they use, which has been successful so far, especially in the microgrid context, is called anything as a service. And the idea is the developer of a project or an investor partner holds the asset on their balance sheet, and the customer only pays an ongoing subscription fee for the services that they receive. And the key value here is that the customer does not need to front the upfront cost of an expensive asset 
and simply pays on an ongoing basis. And this is in particular going to be critical for commercial fleet electrification. There's a number of companies offering EV charging solutions, as well as the, the, the electric medium and heavy duty trucks themselves. So that as a financing mechanism is in the early days going to be critical to get that up and a number of other expensive technologies deployed when basically end customers are unable to do so themselves. And with a lot of these new technologies that are being developed and with partners that are, that are large, well-known names, I mean, at the end of the day, who's going to end up running the show? Well, that is maybe the, the billion-dollar question or maybe even a bigger number than that. So one of the things I showed is if you look at the partnerships that exist in industry uh, between a lot of the most innovative players, a lot of those partnerships are focused on what I call the big three DERs of solar, storage, and EV charging. And this is primarily in the home. There's a whole separate set of partnerships that are primarily, you know, within the kind of big four smart home ecosystem space. So think Amazon and Google. Those are really a separate set of integrations and they don't talk to each other. So we have this kind of like chasm between these big energy assets in the home and the smart home. And eventually we will need to bridge that gap to achieve home energy management. But who is going to run the show? Some of these platforms have really good access to you as the customer. Other platforms have, are knowledgeable about utilities and wholesale markets and the energy world. And so when it comes to automating energy management in the home, which is going to have to happen, it's not clear who will be in charge. So we've had some really great discussions and debates uh, today. What are you looking forward to most on tomorrow's agenda? Well, there's a number of panels that I'm very excited about. Uh, one of them is uh, with automakers, uh, specifically uh, BMW and uh, General Motors. It's about automakers' role in EV charging. I think some of these companies have taken real leadership positions early on in EV charging, and I think we're all hoping to hear a little bit more of a, an indication of where they, where they see the market headed, and some are being very ambitious. Another panel is on the decarbonization of microgrids. Microgrids are becoming a really kind of key technology that's going to enable a lot of the resilience that many of us are looking for as people are concerned with grid vulnerability, uh, and yet there is an emissions issue. And so we're seeing an interesting trend towards uh, solar and storage uh, being integral parts of microgrids. And so we're going to have some of the leading microgrid developers, including PowerSecure, who's the leading developer in the U.S., speaking about you know, their initiatives to, to decarbonize and, and grow their business. And finally, I will be leading a panel that I'm uh, personally excited about on regulatory reforms that are needed to bring customer devices into energy markets, as well as to utility programs. This is a really kind of messy space and there's lots of rules and red tape. And so I'm gonna um, sit with some of the kind of leading thinkers in getting these devices into markets, getting them compensated, and really enabling us to scale the distributed energy resource market. That sounds great. I'm looking forward to those as well. Ben, listen, thanks for, thanks for stopping by and spending some time with us, appreciate it. Terrific, thank you. We've had some fascinating insights here today at the Grid Edge Innovation Summit, and there's going to be plenty more tomorrow. But for now, we're off to dinner with some of the greatest minds in the industry to continue the debate around opportunities and challenges around grid monetization. Mm-hmm.